Instructions for the church. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She was truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. If she has brought up children and has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. Let the elders who rule be well considered, worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may rest, oh, so that they rest, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and on and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. That's a personal note for Timothy. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is God's word. You may be seated. How are you guys doing? Good? Good. Well, tonight will be our last study in 1 Timothy for a while. Uh, because as you can see, there's a giant Christmas tree and there's an Advent wreath and wise men over there. Uh, we are quickly 
coming upon Advent season. And Christmas is going to be here before you know it. You guys getting ready? How many of you guys are like Christmas music before Thanksgiving people? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> my kids are trying to get into it. They're, my daughter specifically is playing Christmas music all the time. I'm like, not until Friday. I know, I'm a little bah humbug. Not really. I, I love Christmas, but too much too soon. Yeah? Anybody else? Okay. We have a lot of text to cover tonight, the entire chapter of chapter 5, and there's a lot in there. We're not going to do anything exhaustive. We're not going to go through this like word by word, by word tonight. Um, my hope is that we will hit some of the key themes in this passage, in this, this chapter, that will hit some of the like, main thrust of what Paul's trying to accomplish here. Remember, and I say this, I think, every, every week I'm up here, this is a personal letter that Paul has written to Timothy. This is a personal letter, piece of mail, that Paul wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy, to give him instructions on how to deal with a situation that he has been charged to deal with in the city of Ephesus. Paul sent Timothy to stay at this church and to correct and to fix some problems that had taken place. He's cleaning up a bit of a mess. Paul says that he is writing Timothy. Why? So that he would know how one should behave in the household of God. That's kind of been our theme this entire time, to know how one should behave in the household of God. And our passage this evening is very much in that same vein of thought. It's very much continuing with the same thought that has been going this entire time. Um, yet it's a little unusual. Paul is dealing, his primary concern here is switched from like theory to very practical. Paul has switched now all of a sudden to a very administrative, practical, almost nitpicky kind of section here. Paul's concern now is, is, is really on the administration of the local church there in Ephesus. It's easy, I think, sometimes to forget that keeping a community like this functioning and thriving, there's administration that has to happen behind the scenes. And that's what we see. We get behind the curtains here. We're getting a little bit of a picture of what Paul is in helping Timothy deal with behind the scenes of this local church. What is evident as you read this passage, specifically this section about dealing with widows, is that the church does have a social support function. Right? I mean, David even mentioned here a few minutes ago that like, we do have a benevolence fund. We do have a system in place for social support, for caring for the, the weak, the vulnerable, and the needy. But I think as we see tonight, it's a, very, it's a limited function of the church. It is a function, but it is not the primary function of the church. 
It is not the church's duty to feed the world. But it is the responsibility of every every believer, every follower of Jesus to care for the weak and the vulnerable and the needy and the less fortunate. We should be concerned with that in and of ourselves. Jesus said this, and this is a a hallmark of what the church should be marked by. In John chapter 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. This is John 13, 34. If you have your Bibles, you have to go there because I didn't get it in time to get it on the screens. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There is a marking characteristic of the way that we care for each other, the way that we care for those inside of the family specifically, that paints the picture that we are a disciple of Jesus. So the question here as we look at this chapter is what is going on in Ephesus? What's, this, what's the background story of why Paul is even writing this? Something's going on. Paul's not just arbitrarily like, oh, we're going to talk about widows today. This whole chapter... Really, the whole book is dealing with the house, how to behave in the household of God. The context of this whole thing is about family and community, the community dynamics and family dynamics of the church. And it's set, it's located in the family dynamics of the first century in the Roman Empire. That's all important background. I think... Before we get much further, verse 1 and 2 set the tone that we need for the rest of this passage. This is how we're to view each other in the church. Verse one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. Other translations will say exhort him as you would a father. Younger men as a brother. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Thinking back to last week, which didn't actually end up in the recording, so if you weren't here, it's, it's gone. Can't hear it. Sorry. But you can read the passage. Thinking back to last week, remember, Paul told Timothy not to let anyone look down on him for his youth. Paul told Timothy that he is to set an example for the way to live. He is to challenge others to follow his lifestyle. And then when we get to these two verses in chapter 5, just the next part in what was a letter that would have been read all the way through, Paul tells Timothy to treat everyone in the community as family. Timothy should not overcompensate for his youth 
by rigidly exercising his authority. He shouldn't let anyone look down on him, but he should not overcompensate by rigidly expressing his authority. So when dealing with individuals in the church, in the community of disciples, he should treat them as he would members of his family by showing respect to his elders, sensitivity to his peers, and purity of intention towards the opposite sex. This is important. This is really important. If we looked at older men in our community as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters, think of the way that would change the way that we relate to each other. Think of the way that would have an effect on how you'd think about and deal with conflict in the community. So Paul is sending Timothy to go deal with conflict. He's sending Timothy to go deal specifically with elders that are, spe- that are uh, dealing with heresy and there's false teaching and he has to confront them. He has to deal with these problems. But Paul says, don't rebuke them, these older men. Now, that does not mean he's not to confront them, because that would be like, was he going to do passively, aggressively, kind of like hint at fixing the heresy? No, it doesn't mean you don't confront them. The word rebuke here means to strike at harshly, to deal harshly with. It implies more than just a confrontation. This is a harsh sharp cut down. And Paul says, when you're dealing with these older, these elders in the church, these older gentlemen, you're not going to get very far if you come with a tone that is harsh and sharp and cuts them down. But if you think of them as fathers and you exhort them, you encourage them towards godliness, then you'll make progress. That'll get you a lot further. That'll help. If we start to think of each other as family, that helps in the way that we relate with each other. The problem is, in Western church, which has been my context, is what I know, we don't actually see each other as family. We see each other as club members or like fellow practitioners. We we come to an organization together. But Paul says, you're family. View each other as brothers and sisters, father and mother. We might, I mean, we'll use that language. We'll call each other brother, sister. But do we actually care for each other as brother and sister? Are we even aware of what's going on in each other's lives?
this chapter then quickly shifts this whole discussion into, into widows. And it could seem kind of odd in your first pass reading through it. Who, who read through this chapter this week, like in anticipation? Good. It can seem kind of odd, like, what is going on with, with the widows in this culture? I think there's a few pieces of just background history that help kind of make this make sense, help bring some clarity to what Paul's dealing with, uh, or what Timothy is dealing with in Ephesus. The Roman Empire, first century Roman Empire, had a huge population of widows. This was a large uh, demographic group here, much higher than what we would have today. Part of the reason is the life expectancy, theorized, is, was pretty low. I mean, historians say you would be lucky to live past your late 40s in the Roman Empire. Life expectancy was low. Brides were often young. So you have older men marrying younger brides, and then they're dying in their late 40s, leaving younger widows. There was a lot. Life expectancy can leave some really puzzling questions for as we get further down into this chapter. But what's going on in this, this is what historians say, the infant mortality rate was super high. Like half of the population died before they hit the age five. Super high. And if you survived childhood, the average expected life expectancy was less than 50. You guys praise God for modern medicine and healthcare system here. Yeah? Life expectancy less than 50. Evidently, there was enough of a population of these widows in Ephesus that Paul felt like it deserved this large chunk of his personal letter to Timothy. It was a big enough issue in what he was dealing with, what Timothy had to deal with in this church, that it takes an entire chapter. What we have broken down as a chapter. Add to that the pervasive culture of the cult of Artemis in Ephesus, which we've talked at at length at the beginning of this series, many women, when their husband died, they were left destitute. They had nothing, no support structure, and so they would resort to cult prostitution to make ends meet. which brings in, I think, a much clearer picture of what's going on in Ephesus. You have these young widows who are result, resorting to cult prostitution to make ends meet, and Paul is confronting that head on. Now, the Old Testament makes it clear that followers of Yahweh are to care for and to take care of the widow and the orphan and the foreigner, the traveler. It's a very clear Old Testament theme running throughout the entire Old Testament. It's a, a mandate that is to mark and to make specific the people of God, 
that we are a people who care for the marginalized and the weak, those who can't care for themselves. The people who follow Yahweh, that's what they do. They care for the weak and the marginalized. We know from the beginning of Acts that the early Jesus community developed this robust system of social good. We know that as early as as Acts 2, following Pentecost, there was this radical system that was developing of selling all their possessions, all their goods, all their belongings, and distributing the proceeds to anyone who had need. Let's read it, Acts 2.42. I don't think we can read it enough. Acts 2.42 through 47. Again, you have to turn there because it's not going to be on the screen. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple Together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the picture of the church, guys. This is what marked the development of the early church. This is what set them on their trajectory. This is what made them unique in that Roman culture. It was revolutionary. This was a dramatic example of what the new community of the Messiah was to be like, how it was to live. The early church was known very specifically for the way that it cared for the weak, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. They were so well known for this that there are letters that we have of Roman officials who are trying to figure out what do we do with these Christians? They take better care of our people than we do. During plagues, this is recorded history, during plagues, the church would stay in the city when everybody else would flee and they would care for the dying. The church would take infants that were left out in the wilderness to die, and they would adopt them. The church would care for and provide for the widows and the travelers and the orphans. This is one of the key things that marked the Jesus community and helped it flourish and grow as a contrast, a distinct community in Rome, the Roman Empire. We, the church, viewed everyone that came to Messiah as someone who was accepted and adopted into a family, regardless of race, ethnicity, social status, whatever. You were adopted into a family. They cared for each other in a radical way. 
Truly, this is a colony of heaven in a culture of death. This is what we see in Acts. But as we see in our passage tonight, that kind of community requires some administration and standards to keep it going. What we see, I think, in our text today is that there has to be some behind-the-scenes administration to make a community like that function and grow beyond just a small little subset of people. While the church is a family, it is also a collection of families and communities that gather together. And part of what is happening here in this passage is Paul is saying, look, let's keep this sustainable. We need to put some systems in place to keep this thing moving. And at first glance, if we're honest and we're reading this, Paul's administration, at least to me, seems kind of extreme. A little nitpicky almost. Anybody else feel that way reading it? Just think about it. Verse 3, Paul says, Honor widows who are truly widows. Paul's making a distinction between widows and those who are truly widows, as if losing your husband doesn't qualify you for being a widow. There's a distinction here. Or verse 9, he says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. I spent some time thinking about that one this week, given the life expectancy, less than 50. Wow, Paul, like, that seems a little strict. That would be like us saying, you only qualify if you're over 70, over, over 87, 10 years above the life expectancy. But what's the point here? What, what is Paul getting at? I think the point is not necessarily an age or even a method of distinguishing who's a true widow and who's not. I don't think we're supposed to use this as like some formula for who gets financial assistance from the church or who doesn't. People definitely use it that way. I don't feel like that's actually the point here. I think the point actually comes out in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's an intense verse. And I think often that verse gets read out of context and unemployed men feel like very weak when they read that verse. And for sure, I, I think there's, there's truth in here, but... The point of this, <clears throat> the point here is that in order for the church as a collective assembly of disciples of Jesus in a given region to be able to continue to help the weak, the vulnerable, and the needy, to be a vibrant community that lives in contrast to the world, in order for all that to happen, families... Better said, probably, that word could be translated close-knit relational communities should be the first line of support.
The word there for household is this word, uh, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but oikos. Is that, is that right? Yeah, close. It means persons who are related by kinship or circumstance and form a closely knit group. That's to be the first level of support. That's what Paul's getting at here. The first level of support is to be those who you're in a tight-knit relationship with, your family. So here's how this works. There are those who are truly in need of support. They really need help. They lack any structure or any family or community around them, and they need support. That's where the church, as a collective organization, comes in. We have systems and structure. We have a benevolence fund for that. Okay? But Paul's program for widows looks to engage the people's community directly around them. Paul looks to activate the relational network around each other. Because if you're really living as brothers and sisters, you know what's going on in each other's lives, and you are the best line of support for each other. Also, I think Paul's program here, Paul's the way he's laying this out, it largely aims at preventing this moral decline that was happening because of this pursuit of finances. I think that's why he puts so much emphasis on the younger widows. He says that they should probably remarry, actually. It would be better for them to just remarry, or their family should care for them. I think the point here is that a system of just non-discriminate social support was actually creating an unhealthy place. It was supporting a system that encouraged sin. Because what was happening is a large number of these widows, younger specifically, they had a problem. And Paul calls it idleness. That word idleness. I'll bring that into modern language here for us. I think what that means is they were finding too much entertainment in other people's lives. They were idle. They were finding enjoyment and fulfillment in other people's lives. I think we have an entire culture built around this nowadays. Social media, the news media, it's completely built off of finding enjoyment off of other people's lives. Paul calls that idleness. It leads to sin. Paul actually says that they're straining after Satan, straying after Satan. They're, they're going after Satan in their idleness. It's harsh. But Paul doesn't want the church's generosity to help perpetuate that idleness. Actually, I think this is, this is a really cool thing. It's amazing here that he wants to bring some dignity, actually, to these widows.
the early church, and if you read the commentary on this chapter, it actually gets confusing because later on in church history, this thing develops called the order of widows, modeled after this. The early church actually took this principle and they created a order of widows where they would financially support widows to be to give themselves to the place of prayer and fasting as a ministry of the church they gave dignity and a role or responsibility to that support Instead of just a free handout, there's dignity, there's a work of prayer uh, that they're contributing to. It's an honorable thing. It's interesting to me that as he's finishing this section on widows, he returns to some more instruction on elders. Again, I think it's all in that same vein of administrative backbone of the church. He says that the things that the church should be investing its finances, collective resources into, people who have real needs, genuine needs, the preaching and teaching of the word, these are the things the, resor- the collective resources should go to. And if we put too much effort too much investment elsewhere, those things aren't going to happen. Given the context of the rest of 1 Timothy, I think the issues Timothy's dealing with, a lot of it has to do with elders who have gone astray, with those who are supposed to be preaching and teaching the word, but they're caught up in other things. It seems that one of the implications or some of the implication here is that the elders that should have been compensated and freed up and allowed to be focused on the teaching and preaching of the word, they're focused on other things. Before I move too too much further here, I do think there's a a couple verses that Needs some specific attention here. How many of you guys have listened to any of the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Anybody? Okay. Two of these verses in this chapter get heavily brought out in that podcast. Verse 19 and 20. This whole thing about do not admit a charge against an elder except by the evidence of two or three witnesses. How do I say this? Poor leaders, manipulative leaders, will use this passage as a cover and a scapegoat for themselves to deflect accountability and responsibility. I want you to know my heart, our heart as elders, come to us, talk to us, there's, there, I think there's a right context for this, what he's saying here. Don't blast people publicly, but by all means. Anyways, some of that podcast, just manipulating and using these passages or passages like this as a shield to protect themselves, that's shameful. Anyways, 
I don't think that's the point. The point here is not to protect the elders from fault. The point here is to protect the elders from false accusations. But for sure, there are some that are legitimate and the legitimate concerns. Feel free to bring those up. We, as church leaders, we're not perfect. Church leaders are not perfect. We're humans. We sin, and we need to repent and confess our sin. And we want to be open to doing that. Amen? That got all weird for a second there. The podcast is worth listening to, if you haven't. I will say that the first four episodes are good, and then it kind of takes a dive, my opinion. So I like to ask every week, what does this mean for us here and now? We don't necessarily have the same widow issue that they had in Ephesus. But it's important for us to then, how do we extrapolate this situation and bring it into the here and now? Paul's dealing with a very specific issue in a specific location, but we can extrapolate that through wisdom and interpretation. And what does this mean for us now? Who are our widows? I mean, and for sure, that includes widows, real widows. But I think we can take this more broadly. This should apply, I think, to single moms. This should apply to the elderly, foster children, refugees. This is the weak, the vulnerable, those on the fringe of society, marginalized, without support. Outside of the normal support structure. As followers of Jesus, we are to care for those, especially within our relational network, that fall into that category. Perhaps if you have no one in your relational network that falls into that category, perhaps you have so insulated yourself that you don't have anyone that falls in that category, maybe we need to broaden our relational network. We are to care for the weak and the vulnerable and the marginalized. That's what marks the Jesus community as different and distinct. Even if they don't agree with you, we are, so, we are to care for those on the outside. Especially if they're in your relational community. Amen? I'm going to pray. The worship team can come back up. Father, I just thank you that throughout Scripture, you care for the stranger and the orphan. You care for the widow. You care for the poor and needy. That Jesus, when we were alienated and strangers, when we found ourselves as far off, 
enemies of God, that you sought us out, that you went to pay the price for our sin, to seek us out and to bring us into, to adopt us into a family, that you pursued us. That you were on a mission to bring us into this family. And God, I pray that you would remind us that we are on that mission with you. That we are to bring and to pursue those who are far from Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is good and it is true. I pray that it would lead us to righteousness, that it would lead us to Christ-likeness, that we would follow you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.